The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. come to God's Word today, the second part of Hebrews 13. Now we are tackling a bit of a longer section this morning than typical, and uh, we'll look at it more in a big picture than in all of its details, and the pastors decided to do that uh, so that we could uh, preach through Luke 1 and 2 for Advent in December, so that's where we're headed next. But as a reminder of our context, as we come to the end of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews has been giving us a glorious defense of the superiority of Christ and of his salvation. In recent chapters, he's urged believers to run their race with endurance, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. He's urged them to endure discipline patiently, knowing God's love for them. And he's urged them not to refuse God's message of salvation, lest they face judgment. And now here in Hebrews 13, the author is ending with a series of short practical encouragements for how believers ought to live their lives in light of Christ's superiority. We're picking up in verse 7 this morning, and if you would follow with me as we read Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. And I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. And you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. 
Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. God, how we thank you for these words. How we thank you for this letter to the Hebrew Christians. Would you be with us this morning? Encourage our hearts in the grace of your word. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. As I read Hebrews 13, I have an image of my mind, an image in my mind of the author who's finished the main content of his argument about the superiority of Christ, and he knows he needs to wrap up the letter, but he has so many pieces of advice that he would like to give to these Hebrew Christians, to these Christians that are on his heart that he knows and he loves. And so he ends up writing this list of one after another brief advices to these believers. It's sort of like a parent who drops their student off at a friend's house for a birthday party or or maybe a sleepover, and maybe you've been on one or both of the uh, ends of this experience where the parent is dropping their child off and they want to remind them of all the ways they should behave at the party they're about to attend. And so they're dropping them off, and even as the child's getting out and closing the door, the mom's saying, don't forget to look adults in the eye, say please and thank you, don't get into gossip, and she's giving that last-minute advice. I remember uh, my sisters and I used to try to preempt this. We'd be about maybe a mile away from a friend's house, and we'd say, we know, Mom, what lecture 132 is. You don't have to go through it all for us. But I give that uh, picture, I think that's what this chapter sounds like at times, is this author has so much he wants to say. And he wraps this letter up with these brief pieces of advice. And so as we look at these verses, we get six imperatives, or six things the author urges believers to do, and then one beautiful prayer at the end. Six imperatives and one prayer. Let's work through them together. The first imperative comes in verses 7 and 8, where the author urges the Hebrew Christians to remember your leaders. Remember those who spoke the word of God to you. Now, of course, the author doesn't just want the Hebrews to remember them as if remember their names or remember who they are, because he tells us that he wants wants us to remember them by considering the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. In other words, they're not just supposed to remember who their first senior pastor was or something along those lines. Rather, they're supposed to remember how their leaders lived and are to change the way they live as a result. It seems likely most commentators agree because the author of Hebrews tells us to consider the outcome of their way of life. It's likely that these leaders have now passed away, uh, are now dead, and we're supposed to remember the outcome of their life. But either way, this is the encouragement. Remember them and imitate their faith. This is really the same message the author's been giving us for three chapters. In chapter 11, we were told to remember the patriarchs of the Old Testament and their faith in God. In chapter 12, we were supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus and run after him. And now in chapter 13, we're to remember our leaders who first brought God's word to us and so imitate them. And verse 8 gives us the reason for why we're to remember our leaders. Look at verse 8. Remember your leaders and live like they lived. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it seems like one of the objections that the Hebrew Christians could have made was, okay, it's all very well and good for me to imitate the faith of the leaders who went before me, but they weren't being persecuted like we are. They didn't have their houses robbed. They weren't put in prison 
like we are. So sure, tell me to live like John, that's fine. But remember, I'm facing a lot of hard things that John never faced. And you can imagine that sort of conversation or that objection. But the author responds by pointing out that a life of faith does not depend on our circumstances, but on the Savior that we have walking through those circumstances with us. And so he reminds them, yes, we can imitate their faith. It is perfectly appropriate to do so. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. His promises always endure. His presence is always with us. He is faithful and we can persevere in our faith because he is the same and he is the one we rely on. This is such an important reminder for us because when we're facing suffering or anxiety, one of Satan's favorite tools is to urge us to despair by thinking that no one has ever had to go through what we're going through right now. And while this is usually not true that no one has gone through what we have gone through, it is certainly the case quite often that those who would try to comfort us have not been through the same things that we have been through. But the author of Hebrews is bringing real comfort and real assurance into this scenario because the important thing is not whether the person bringing God's word to you has gone through exactly the same thing you have. The important thing is whether Jesus and his presence and his promises and his salvation were the same for them yesterday as they are for you today and will be forever. And that is true. That's the first imperative. Second imperative comes in verses 9 through 15 where the author urges us, let us go to Jesus outside the camp. Now, these verses can be a bit confusing, so let's walk through the argument briefly. Verse 9 begins with a warning not to be led away from faith in Christ by various teachings and the reason that they should not be led away is that our hearts are strengthened by grace, not by foods. Not by foods or other laws. The The author here is making an argument based on the Day of Atonement and the sacrifice that was made on the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament for the forgiveness of sins. And so his original readers would have understood his argument perfectly well, but you and I haven't been through a Day of Atonement sacrifice, so it takes a little more work for us to follow what he's saying. We have to remember the scenario. On the Day of Atonement, the sacrificial animals were brought to the altar and killed, and then their blood was brought into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the altar. But then the whole offering was taken outside the camp and burned. For many of the offerings in the Old Testament, the priests and the Levites would eat the offering. That was how God provided for them. So after the offering, the priests and the Levites would eat it. They would be strengthened by the food of the offering. But not the offering on the Day of Atonement. On that day, that food could not strengthen them. They had no right to that altar. The whole thing was taken outside the camp and burned. But, says the author, we now have Jesus Christ. He has fulfilled the Day of Atonement by offering the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And just like on the Day of Atonement, Jesus was sacrificed outside the camp. He was killed outside Jerusalem on that hill of Golgotha. But unlike in the Old Testament, we are now invited to come outside the camp to Jesus and to feed on Jesus. We are now invited to be strengthened by the grace of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. As one author put it, unlike in the Old Testament, we are permitted now to feast on the whole sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We enjoy the full full measure of the benefit which his sacrifice 
was designed to secure. We are allowed to feed freely upon the highest and holiest of all sacrifices. Our reconciliation with God is complete, our fellowship now intimate and delightful. So whereas in the old covenant on the day of atonement, they had no right to that altar, no right to feed and be strengthened by that sacrifice, we now have Jesus Christ and are invited freely to feed on him and be strengthened by his grace. But the author says, we are invited to do that. But remember, Jesus was sacrificed outside the camp. So for us to receive this grace and strength, we too must go outside the camp to him, to suffer reproach outside the camp with him. Yes, this means that going to Jesus calls us away and out of our citizenship in this world. It means that there are activities in language, music, sports, possessions that define the community in this world that we leave behind, respect and acceptance that we leave behind to go out to Jesus outside the camp. But that's okay, says the author of Hebrews, because this world is not a lasting city. In Christ, we have a lasting city that we seek that is offered to us. In other words, we gladly abandon the things of this world now. We gladly abandon the things of this world because that's not what we want anymore. We want the city that is to come. We want the lasting city. I think this, of course, is a good reminder for all of our students who are surrounded by our culture, but it's not just a reminder for our students. Every single one of us is tempted to find our comfort and our security and our strength in things of this world. Yes, maybe it's acceptance in the halls of a public school, but maybe it's being respected at work. Maybe it's having the kind of marriage that I want to have. Maybe it's having a big enough 401k so I don't have to worry. Maybe it's having successful kids and grandkids I can be proud of. Maybe it's coping with difficulties in life through mindless hours of Netflix or other things we put in our place. We are all tempted to find our strength and our comfort by things of this world. But as one author reminded us, Things of this world do not strengthen God's people. What we need is the grace of God. And this grace comes from a heavenly altar instead of an earthly altar. From a lasting city to come, not the perishing city surrounding us now. And so the summons is let us go outside the camp to Jesus. Being willing to bear reproach and give up the things of this world. Because there we find real grace to be strengthened in our hour of need. Well, that was imperative number two. We get imperatives number three and four in verses 15 and 16. If you look at these verses, you'll see that the author picks up on the language of sacrifice. In verse 15, we read, Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And in verse 16, Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And maybe you can hear the author responding to a Jewish objection. Christians, you don't have any sacrifices anymore. How do you think you're going to be pleasing to God when you no longer are offering sacrifices? And the author of Hebrews is saying, well, it's true. We don't offer blood sacrifices anymore because we have the perfect blood sacrifice in Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean we're not offering up sacrifices to God. We absolutely still have sacrifices. In fact, they're the very sacrifices, if you go back to the Old Testament, that God wanted from his people in the first place. Because if you think back to the Old Testament, while blood sacrifices at that time were certainly necessary for the forgiveness of sins, 
The Old Testament repeatedly gives us hints that God longed for the sacrifices of obedience and praise. You might think of 1 Samuel 15, when Saul, the king, defeated his enemies, but instead of killing all the livestock, took it captive as his own. And when Samuel confronted him, he said, oh, I was going to offer them all as a sacrifice to God. And what does Samuel say? He says, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Or maybe you think of Isaiah 1, where Isaiah the prophet says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings, of rams and fat of well-fed beasts. Wash yourself, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes, cease to do evil, and learn to do good. See, these are the sacrifices God's people are continuing to make, and it's what the author of Hebrews calls us to do. In the New Testament, in Philippians 4, Paul picks up the same language. The Philippian church had sent him a gift of money to meet his needs and aid him in the work of God. And what does Paul say? He says, your gift was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. See, God's word is calling us to continue to make sacrifices, but now to make sacrifices that are the praise of God's name, obedience to God's word rather than sin, and a life shaped by generosity that is eager to give to the Lord's people and the Lord's work. Of course, verse 15, right at the beginning, those first two words, verse 15 clarifies we only do this through him, through the power of Christ in us. It is Christ, it is through Christ we're enabled to do this. But as we examine our hearts this morning, the question for us is what kind of sacrifices are evident in our lives? Would Paul, or the author of Hebrews, see the praise of God continually on our lips? Would he see a life shaped by the desire to do good, not evil? Would he see a heart generously sharing what we have and giving to the Lord's people and the Lord's work? That's the question in these two imperatives. Well, we move on to imperative number five in verse 17. Whereas earlier in our passage, we were to remember our past leaders... In verse 17, we are to obey our current church leaders and to submit to them. We know these are church leaders because the author says they are keeping watch over your souls as to those who give account to God. The importance of these verses is not that believers are just called to obey their leaders no matter what. This passage is not a a carte blanche uh, authority given to church leaders so that if any church leader suggests a plan, then the congregation is supposed to just march right in line behind him. Or it's not saying that church leaders automatically just be obeyed because uh, that's what we have to do. In fact, I think it's grieving if you pay attention to the news, you see that there are pastors around the country who are using the church's money for their personal gain who are using their authority, their ambition, and a temper to ensure obedience from staff and congregation. And these men should be held accountable for their sin. This passage, rather, the point of this verse is to remind us that God's leaders, the leaders of God's churches, have been called to the task to keep watch over our souls. And that task is so important and so weighty that they will be held accountable to God for whether church leaders are watching over our souls. 
And so if someone who is being held accountable to God comes to you keeping watch over your soul, how much should you be ready to listen to them, to hear what they have to say, knowing that before God they are watching over our souls? And I've seen this play out in practical ways over the six years that I've pastored here. In multiple cases, I can think of individuals whom pastors or elders came to and said, brother, sister, we see things in your life that are concerning to us. We see sin in your life. You see a heart that does not seem to care about Jesus Christ. But that individual disagreed. He thought they were doing just fine. They ignored the elders and continued down this path. And the consequences are severe. And so the author of Hebrews says, if we fail to hear the warning of those that God is holding accountable to watch over our souls, we do so to our peril. And that's imperative number five. Last imperative, number six, comes in verse 18. And it's this. Pray for us. Pray for us. The last imperative is that we, as God's people, are called to pray for the leaders of the church. Here the author, just as Paul does in several of his letters, asks that the church he is writing to would pray for him. It's an interesting phrase here in verse 18 as you look at the wording about a clear conscience. And commentators are somewhat uh, uh, divided It may mean that because the author is appealing to a clear conscience and saying his conscience is clear and that he desires to be restored to these believers, it may be that the author is in prison. This may reflect that he's in prison and and he says, I'm in prison, but my conscience is clear before God and I desire to be restored to you soon. Or it may just indicate that the author has a clear conscience, that he has written to this church out of genuine love and concern for them. And he desires very much to be with them again soon. But either way, the author is clearly doing two things. He's asking for prayer, and he's expecting that prayer will actually lead to results. You see the end of verse 19 there? I urge you to do this the more earnestly, in order that I may be restored to you sooner. The author is expecting that if God's people pray, he will be restored sooner because of their prayers. And I think these two things... The call to pray for our church leaders and to pray expecting that the prayer of God's people is powerful are the two things for us to take from this verse. When I was first ordained as a pastor here at Westminster back in 2013, Troy DeBruin, the youth pastor before me, gave the charge to the congregation and he gave the charge from these verses here in Hebrews chapter 13. And I still remember him saying and reminding Westminster, and I would remind you again today, that your pastors are fellow sinners. We are not perfect. We don't have uh, a perfect avenue of wisdom from the Lord so that you know, we, don't, we don't need your help or your prayers. We're not sufficient. We are sinners who need the grace of Christ, and we need your prayers. And apart from the prayers of God's people, we are weakened in our calling as pastors of God's church. And so this morning I would ask you, I would ask you to pray for the elders and pastors of Westminster because if the preaching and the teaching of our church is to be effective, you must pray for us. If a sermon is going to be more than just a good speech and is going to have an impact on the hearts and minds of God's people, you must pray for us. If a transition from one senior pastor to another is going to go smoothly so that we as a congregation love God and love one another and are united in that, you must pray for us. 
If the gospel of God is going to go out here in Lancaster County so that more people come to know Jesus through Westminster, you must pray for us. If the gospel is going to go to the ends of the world, and if Westminster is going to send missionaries to take God's word so that people around the globe come to know him, you must be praying for us. And so I would ask this morning that God's people, that you would pray for your leaders and to do so knowing that God has promised that his prayers are the way that he works. And so our prayer is effective in God's kingdom. Well, as we come to the close of this letter, let me just point you briefly to the prayer in verses 20 and 21. Here we have one of the most beautiful prayers in all of Scripture. A prayer that has blessed God's people at the end of worship services thousands of times. And this prayer in verses 20 to 21 perfectly summarizes all that the author has said in his heart and his desire for these people that he's writing to. And I want you to just briefly notice two things from this prayer. First, notice the author expresses his chief desire. Now, there's a lot of subordinate clauses in this prayer. So if you're going to notice the main subject and verb and the main thing he's asking, you have to follow carefully this uh, sentence, this long sentence. But if you do, you will see, now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will. That is his chief desire. And as Kent Hughes points out, the depth of this request rests on the word equip. What is it that this author is praying for when he prays that God would equip his people to do his will? Well, the Greek word translated equip here is very similar to the English word, but it has a bit broader of a meaning. It means to make something good, to repair something, to perfect something. Or maybe the best way to say it is to take something that is not useful and effective to make it useful and effective again. That is to equip something for its task. Maybe we can take some examples from our lives. If your car battery dies and you don't have jumper cables, you are now useless. You are not going anywhere. But if you are equipped with jumper cables, you can now help and be equipped to go on your way. Or if you're going on an overnight hike and you set out with nothing but a sandwich, you're unlikely to be ineffective in your overnight trip. But the Boy Scout who has whatever he needs, is equipped for a successful trip. The key point is this. As sinners, we are broken and unable to do God's will. Apart from Christ, we cannot do what God requires of us. And so the author prays that in Christ, God would equip us, would mend us, would make us able to do his will. So as Kent Hughes puts it, he says, the prayer here is a beautiful request that God would mend and perfect his children with everything good, thus equipping him to do God's will. Well, the second thing to notice from this prayer, how does God equip us? How does he equip us to do his will? Well, very clearly, we are equipped to do God's will through Christ, through the Savior whom God brought up from the dead, whom God appointed to be the great shepherd of the sheep, who gave his blood of the eternal covenant, and to whom be glory forever and ever. This Jesus is the one who equips us. And so this prayer is such a perfect summary of the whole letter of Hebrews. Because we're reminded that we are equipped and able to do God's will, not by laws, not by the right rules, not by animal sacrifices, not by amazing self-control, not by priests or the right leaders. No, we are equipped to do God's will by Jesus Christ. 
Jesus who is better than angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than the Old Testament priesthood, better than the Old Testament sacrifices. Christ is the one who cleanses us. Christ brings us near to God. Christ purifies and remakes us and so enables us to do what is pleasing to him. And so all these practical commands that the author has given us to tell us how we live, how we do God's will, they're all enabled as we rest on Christ in faith. That's the Savior who's offered us. So brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel here, the good news of the gospel is not just a religion we happen to follow because we're Christians. It's not a set of truths we affirm to make sure our eternal status is covered. No, the good news of the gospel is that God has sent his son Jesus Christ to shed his blood for the forgiveness and cleansing of our sins and has raised him from the dead to be the great shepherd of us, his sheep, So that through Jesus we are equipped and enabled to do what is pleasing to God and we are then invited with all creation to join in singing glory, glory, glory to Jesus Christ forever and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, how we thank you and praise you for Jesus Christ. How we thank you for sending this great shepherd of the sheep. How we thank you that you have brought him to shed the blood of the eternal covenant. How we thank you that you've raised him again from the dead so that through faith in him, through Christ, we are equipped to do your will. Oh, may our hearts be stirred to praise you now and forever to the glory of your name. Amen.